people do get a nine to five job because it's secure. But in my head, it feels like it's also quite volatile because you're quite dependent on whether the market, whether your boss and so many different other factors in that world. I have this idea of like not wanting to saturate um, or add to the noise. But I don't know if it's valid or not. It's just my feeling of maybe the best thing to do in a very noisy world is to not speak. So it's like an internal thing with me um, of how can I be selective and, um, yeah, selective with the appearances that I make and the noise I add to the interwebs. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's sensible. Yeah, and if I can find ways to communicate through work or through other things than speaking, that would be amazing for me. And that's what I always endeavor to do. Um, but also, you said it's a sensible thing, but it's also an interesting dynamic of the world we're in where... Um, like, let's say, for instance, on social media or something, you are rewarded the more frequent you post. So it's like this weird thing of you're encouraged to speak a lot, but you're not really, the quality is not necessarily um, measured, which is an interesting thing, actually. Very interesting for me that I could delve into for hours, but I'll pause there. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, before we start delving into anything, Let's begin with how you grew up. Yes. Um, had a very interesting, varied background. Um, I was born in a country called Burundi, um, East Africa, um, to a fairly big family. Um, I'm the youngest, and it was like a mixture of siblings and cousins all living together. And... It was very interesting on reflection. I can kind of see a fork in the road of my formative years. Um, kind of like the earlier years, I was very, very into games, football, um, activities that may be considered masculine or male. Um, and then, and then I kind of removed together to the UK. Um, to London with my family and then I was living with my sister and my mum and in that period I was in with like um, my other siblings and um, cousins who were predominantly male so to kind of make up this the big family make up it's kind of structured as it, there was one one female and most of us were male um, and then I moved to London and it was just me and my mum and my sister. So it wasn't, there wasn't any clear like different agendas or different ways of um, explicitly being, but I do recognise a fork in the road of in that time of being in London with my mum and my sister. I started getting into more, I guess, creative things um, like music and um expressing myself in those ways and and that might have happened regardless like it might have just happened with age 
I find that interesting that the things that I started getting into were a lot broader than what what I initially thought I would want to do. And how um, old were you when you moved? I was I was around nine. Um, and yeah, initially I moved to Scotland and then London. And then in my time in London, I've just been around so many different places around South, Southeast, um, moving around. And um, yeah, I guess a, a component of this um, is we moved as asylum seekers because Burundi is not, um, it's kind of like a war-torn country and there's conflict every now and then. So we kind of moved to London for like a better a better opportunity, better life. Was that a similar time as what was going on in Rwanda? It is. Um, I mean, when I was born around the 1992 area, um, there was conflict. Yeah, and they have very similar cultures. Rwanda and Burundi is quite similar. I think they were split up in a similar fashion of India and Pakistan. Um, but we have a similar language, similar culture, and yeah, tribes and stuff like that. Huh. So it was split up based on religion? No, I think it was split up by um, colonizers, which I think are Belgium and Germany. And yeah, so I think it was split up in that fashion. And it might have been, I don't know the full history of that, but I think it's along those those lines. It's not religious. It's not. Yeah, because I think India, Pakistan is like Muslim Hindu, but in Rwanda and Burundi, there's both Christians, there's Muslims, there's there's no clear differentiation in religion. And have you ever been back to visit? <clears throat> Great question. No, I haven't. I haven't been back to visit Burundi since I left. Um, yeah, because there's, there's, there's interesting elements going on there, which is... I think my parents still feel a sense of fear of like we left the place for safety. Would we go back not knowing it's safe for us? Um, but there's different thresholds of safety, like friends of friends have been to Burundi, let's say as NGOs or whatever to do work and stuff and they're fine. So that mean I'll be fine. I don't know. Um, yeah. So do you no, think you ever back. would go back? Um, for sure, yes. I think I would go back eventually. It's, I guess it's about timing and... Um, yeah, I definitely would love to go back. I think there's a lot of um, beauty in, in Burundi and stuff that I could just personally learn from. And do you um, have much... Are you still in touch with many people there? Um... Not personally, but through family. So I don't have, like, personal friends because by the time I left, I guess there wasn't uh, phones. and So I wasn't connected with people like that. It was just you'd run over to somewhere and play with someone in your neighbourhood and then you'd see them around. You weren't like, okay, let's pin this down. Let's exchange details and meet again at so-so time. Um, but family are connected to other family, siblings, friends, etc. But most of your family 
came over here? Yes, yes, most of my immediate family. And what are your like clearest memories of your time in Burundi? Um, I remember playing football a lot. Um, playing is a big part. Um, running around, um, swimming, um, drumming. Drumming is a thing in Burundi, um, which is very interesting because then I came back to music later on in life, but never made that connection. But yeah, so like, it's like communal drumming. It's um, it's like this big drum that we bang on. I remember doing that um, pretty young. So mainly playing and having fun. Uh, and there is sprinkles of like gunshots and like hiding and stuff like that. But mainly it's playing that comes back to mind. So it's mostly happy memories. Yeah, mainly happy memories, running around um, in nature with cousins, family. Um, yeah. And how did you find the move? Like, I'm assuming it was a big adjustment. Like, was... I, mo- I moved a similar age, like 11 to the UK. Mm. Um, and yeah, I remember it, being, it being like... <laughs> I was like very upset by the move. So that's why I'm Yeah. Interested. It's so interesting. I think I was more upset when, so we moved together as one family and then me and my sister and my mum moved, like separated from my father. Um, and that was, it was the right move for sure. Cause the, like the house wasn't the best environment because um, of arguments and whatnot. But that move, and that was still within London, I kind of had this um, this moment of like, I'm going to, all my friends are going to be different. I had a football team that I'm now going to have to commute for hours, my school. Like, it was just very inconvenient. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. And at that point, I felt like I had more um, kind of personal roots invested, if that makes sense rather than family roots. Um, I felt like that was more disruptive for me than from Burundi, for some reason. I'm not sure why. Huh. Yeah. So that's great. You like felt like you fit in straight straight away. Yeah. Also, there's a funny aspect to this, which is um, so my family have moved around a lot. I'm kind of used to, quote-unquote, not fitting in. So I don't actually feel I guess I'm comfortable with not fitting in which makes me feel fit in (laughs) um I always feel like I'm seeing things from a little bit of an outsider's perspective and I've kind of made peace with that I don't know how I felt when I was younger it might have been a long time ago but I felt like I've made peace with um with that aspect um there's also a component I want to add to this, which is, I don't know if I hear it enough in people who migrate and move between countries, um, especially people maybe from the global south or um, that kind of region. Um, I think my family were like the kind of fortunate ones to move over here. I don't think a lot of people get to easily move over to UK or 
um, a country that has a bit more opportunity. So we kind of moved from Burundi being, I guess, a fortunate family uh, with kind of good jobs and stuff. And then the socioeconomic shift was a thing. So like in London, we're considered, I guess, not wealthy, uh, lower lower class or middle class or working class, whatever the term is. Um, so there's, it's, it's very interesting, that shift. Um, and I think, yeah, it kind of has a psychological component to it of you feeling like you see the different, like, income brackets in a way. Um, and you can see how, how much of a shift it is in, I guess, access to things and availability. Um, what yeah. were your parents' jobs in Burundi? Um, so I think my dad was in marketing for like a car company or something like that, um, which with the pay he got, it was enough for him to like have a house, a place to live, a car. And so it's very fortunate. And I think my mom just looked after us at home. Um, and then when we moved over to the UK, my mom became like a carer, a nanny, and also working with elder people. And then my my dad worked loads of different jobs and IT and other stuff like that. And then um, like his last main job was working in a hotel as just as a receptionist and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so those are like, the, the jobs um so they found the adjustment to be difficult i would say so um I'd say so for my dad particularly i can envision him kind of looking for jobs and um he like i think his job was more comfortable in um, burundi and africa as in with the income he got, he could like support our family and stuff. But in London, I don't think he got a job that was that lucrative. Um, yeah. And how did you decide where to live in the UK? Um, so as asylum seekers, you're kind of um, given options of where you can live. Um, so we just came, we registered as asylum seekers and um, you kind of hop around, you move from place to place um, based on what's available, based on what you can afford. And also there is an element of you're waiting for your status. So your citizenship or um, yeah, passports to make you officially um, English and able to work and stay here. So that goes on for a few years and then there's different levels to where you could get a like um you can get papers to say that you can work but you're not a citizen and so um um yeah so we got that eventually but i think in the process of getting it there's a level of uncertainty and i kind of felt like our stuff were in most of the times in suitcases and just feeling like you you might have to move anytime and only really settled maybe 15 years ago or something like that. Um, and I've been here for 
maybe maybe ten years ago or so, I feel like I I settled and I've been. Once you get your passport, you're like, okay, you're going to be here for a while. And then you stay in one place. Um, and yeah. was, was there a community here that they could connect with? There isn't a Burundi community that I'm aware of. So um, I think the answer is no, really. But we had each other. and. Um, my mum's quite social and strikes up conversations very easily with people. But um, no community in the sense of a regular place you could go to. Uh, my mum goes to the church a lot, I think. That, that is a factor of community. Um, but I don't know if my dad has much of a community. And for me, it kind of just developed through school and teams and interests and yeah, it just evolved like that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And was it South London that you ended up settling in? Yes. Yes, around South London is where we ended up settling. And you've stayed there ever since? Um. Yes. Yes, we have. Cool. Okay, so then what was school like for you? And what did you, where did your life end up going after I guess 10 years ago when you feel like you were became settled here um school was interesting for me um in the sense I think a lot of my um kind of methods of discovering uh discovering things kind of emerges from wanting to connect with people through let's say like tv programs and songs so in school i kind of always like as i moved around different schools i kind of my shortcut into connecting with people was like oh have you heard this song have you watched this thing on tv so i still watch a lot of tv and music and consume a lot of um art and culture and stuff like that and um initially when i did join there's there's this interesting saying of a freshie which is someone who's just moved in to the country um someone who's not really aware of the codes of how to be so um kind of dressing up extra smart in school like with your tie and shoes and you don't have like the latest um kind of cool stuff so there was an an interesting dynamic which i observed of um people from albania africa whatever south asia they kind of all went through this transition of being the freshie and you can kind of just tell by looking at someone like they've just arrived and they're not they don't really know what what works and what doesn't work and and then by the by a few years later on they have the slang and the speak in a way in which like they're trying to fit in so it's it's interesting I felt like I was observing that trend um and I was very aware of um, being able to be funny and I was quite liked and I could easily get along with people but then kind of then being frustrated of being popular in a way like I felt like it was a bit draining as well 
I didn't want all the attention as much. So I kind of had this, yeah, I guess this transition of like um, being on the outside, being on the inside, and then realizing I don't actually want to be on the inside popular side of things. Um, and it's weird because I feel like it's a microcosm of what happens in the world, like schools. I kind of was very sensitive to the social dynamics that were going on. And in reflection, I feel like school more than education is like socializing people to um, accept social dynamics in the world, wider world of, of people in their different places, different social groups, popularity, non-popularity. Um, so, yeah, school for me was was that, learning all of that, and then also finding it hard when I moved. So I would stay in one school, but I would move different places. And um, at a certain time period in, in England, you have to choose a topic um, and and do your GCSEs and stuff like that. And in that period, it was quite stressful for me because we were moving and um, I felt like I wasn't settled. I wasn't sleeping enough. I was sleeping on like two-hour buses that would take me to and from school. So I was kind of dealing with that and dealing with the social dynamics. And in regards to like grades, I felt like I could always get okay grades, but I I wasn't at the top of the class. I wasn't at the bottom. And I always felt like I wasn't very invested, like emotionally, if that makes sense, in being the the best academically. Um, I love to learn and stuff, um, but not necessarily like I didn't tie my identity to grades, which is an interesting thing, actually, that links further down into um yeah maybe I could keep going so that's mostly what I've described is like high school and then this college and university I didn't want to go to college at around 15 I wanted to like start a business and um in school another component is I used to kind of sell things and very enterprising in a way to sell sweets I used to make cds for people so people would send me a list of tracks that they wanted and then I would make it for them on a computer that my dad got from from work. Um, and yeah, that was very interesting and formative. Um, yeah, there's many threads in my life, but I think like the economic thread is very interesting as well of my relationship with money. So, so, so basically, yeah, I used to, sell CDs and um, sweets and like one of my biggest achievements at that time was being able to sell a CD to my art teacher who who put <laughs> a funny song on his CD which was um, Tipsy by Chingy and I was so surprised that he wanted that on his CD because um, he was just like a serious art teacher but anyways that's a, another tangent um, and I was making CDs for my friend's moms that was very interesting so that introduced me to like a older, um, yeah, it introduced me to loads of interesting music. And um, yeah, so by the time I finished high school, I felt like I wanted to do something maybe to do with 
a record label, a music thing, a brand. I wasn't sure. I just wanted to start something up. But I was like, I'll just go to college and I'll just do a bit of business. Um, I wanted to do business and music, but I could only do business. So I thought I'll do business and do music on my own spare time. And then that finished and I was like, okay, no, I'm definitely not going to uni. <laughs> but I went to uni, kind of did the convention of going to uni and I did music and information systems, which is a, a bit more of a subset of business and how information flows happen and stuff. And um, during that period, after I left uni, I felt like, okay, for sure, I've, I've done the college and the uni thing. I don't want to do the nine to five job thing. And I was just very certain about, at that point, I just, yeah, I was just introduced to a lot of information and stuff that just convinced me that that's not necessarily the most viable um, step to take um, for myself. And so I decided I would what do What kind of information? Um, <clears throat> so, so this was actually, there's, there's something interesting going on here um, around like the economic crashes, 2008. Around that period, I think I was... Um, coming from college to university and there was like a palatable feeling of actually these structures are not stable um, and I ran into like looking into that a little bit as a younger kid introduced me to technological unemployment the fact that uh, most jobs potentially could be automated in a few years and um, fast forward we're like looking at advanced technology and AI and extra things like that um, but yeah I used to it was really funny I used to go around telling people that technological unemployment is a thing and I I don't know I might have sounded a bit wacky to some people at that point but it was mainly information around our socioeconomic structures the inviability of it um, some videos online some books and then running into polymaths like Buckminster Fuller. It was really interesting. I would be at university studying certain kind of laws around entertainment laws or businesses, and I always felt like this feels a bit dated. But I'll just do it. And I, the 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 one thing I liked about uni is that unlike school, I felt like I could do my work, and then I had a lot of free time to do my own research. Um, stuff that interested me curiously so I would find things online and then and then I would go to the library and find a book on Buckminster Fuller or Thurston Veblen who's an old eco economist um, and yeah just I was very lucky that I could find things online and then look it up in the library without having to buy a book and so yeah it was stuff around socioeconomic structures the inviability of our current economic structures and um, that seemed to be reinforced by whether it's economic crashes or ecological destabilizations and etc etc and and yeah I just felt it might be a wiser move to invest in myself and in my learning that's not tied to a job or a grade so, but you have to survive in this world. So I had to get a 
a part-time job that would subsidize me spending the rest of my time just exploring and creating things. So what job um, did you get? So I got a variety of jobs. So um, kind of admin in a charity job was one of the first few I can remember. And then some part-time, just mainly part-time jobs that wouldn't take so much of my time. So I didn't have that much option to get like a high-paying part-time job, but I would get a job that was enough for some bills and stuff. So I would do admin jobs. I would do um, working in, in, yeah, mainly part-time admin jobs, roles for charities, roles for um, research companies, um and then through my interest it's it's a very interesting trajectory of um i was just doing jobs that could get me money but then on the side i was doing community gatherings and researching and and then it feels like it started to converge a little bit where the intro the things that i was doing in my spare time I could then start getting jobs that related to to those topics um, still part-time jobs and then yeah I started getting jobs in managing social spaces um, that was very formative for me being in a space where I was exposed to different people and then working in radio stations as producer and and then consulting um, jobs for grassroots organizations and communities um, governance structures and stuff like that and so what what was the point about your relationship with money so I think hmm, it was around recognizing early on that it had a significant impact on what you could get and not get so like say for instance I wanted sweets or I wanted this thing or that i very early on was like, okay, I need money for that. So then that got me interested in generating a lot of money in lots of little activities that I could. And then I realized it felt like it wasn't the best way to mediate relationships in a way or, um, yeah, it, it didn't seem... It didn't seem necessarily connected to the value I could give or the value I wanted to give. Um, and But it was always still a factor in how anything operated and I kind of saw how it shaped a lot of things in our world and it shaped me, for sure, um, in in what I was able to do and not do. But like being conscious of that, kind of the the part-time job and the interesting for me was a way of trying as much as I could to um, compartmentalize the money and for me also what I thought of is the grade system like the quantitative measurement thing over here and then the qualitative kind of full 
complexity of life in another space where it's not um, reduced to a, to like a figure. I felt like that was quite important for me. I, I probably wouldn't have said this in, in these terms and maybe in a few years I'll use different terms, but there was a strong feeling around it seems to be different worlds, um, but the quantitative world is quite imposing on the qualitative and dictates that in a way that I feel is a bit unhealthy and unbalanced. Um, yeah. That's so interesting because I feel like maybe that's the kind of balance I've got to where it's like I really enjoy working in finance and having a workplace that where I go where it's like a joint mission and the whole point is around like creating wealth and then that well you know whatever like a traditional job but then it's like I also love doing this and this is really important but so many people don't you know it's all about like oh but like monetizing and like this and blah 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 but it's like but can't I just do this thing and grow and then it's like oh but it's not serious then but it's like but Mm. why can't it be serious like why can't I do something and grow something and see where it goes and it's not about like immediate financial reward like today yeah yeah it's very interesting isn't it I think um yeah it's, it's kind of deeply baked within us and our psychology in a way that's hard to shake but I think I ran into I think it was Daniel Pink he's got a book um on motivation and he was talking about intrinsic and extrinsic motivations and what like it sounds like you're talking about is there is things that you could do in a job for money that could get you extrinsic validation but it's not the same as intrinsic validation and um this Daniel Pink book talks about how a lot of inventions and breakthroughs in society and innovation is actually tends to be driven by internal um, intrinsic value, intrinsic validation. And so stuff that people are experimenting on the side that can't quite be um, measured or understood turns out in a few years, it will be the cutting edge of stuff. Um, but people, we need to have that healthy aspect of experimenting with things that don't have immediate validation. And it, for me, that translated into um, how do you kind of develop a sense of self that's not so tied to extrinsic validation? Because I do think the economy of intrinsic validation is rapidly shrinking and potentially going away um so how can i invest my identity in something and sense of being and wholesomeness in something that is not as volatile um it 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 sounds interesting because people do get a nine-to-five job because it's secure but in my head it feels like it's also quite volatile because you're quite dependent on whether the market whether your boss um and so many different other factors in that world. But whereas intrinsic, like if you just enjoy doing this podcast, um, sure, it may change over time, but you're kind of following what 
um, your kind of internal um, intrinsic validation. And intrinsic validation is not selfish so much. It's not just about what gives me joy or pleasure. There's a lot of work that goes into a podcast. There's, it's like, yeah, there's delayed gratification in that as well. It's not just immediate gratification for me. Yeah, but obviously it's a massive privilege, right? Because yes, I guess for most people, I don't know, maybe people just wired differently. Like maybe there's a few things. Whereas some people can have, you know, be earning like a good amount of money, can happily like provide for themselves and their family. And then they are happy like watching sport or whatever it is. And there's no like deeper desire to do anything else, which is like totally fine. Like there's no, you know, they get enough joy out of just their life and that's great. And actually, a lot of the time I wish I was just like that because that just seems like a yeah. way easier way to live. But then, of course, there are people who are every moment of their life is like for their survival. So they're working or they're looking after children or they're looking after someone who's sick or they're, or they're suffering themselves with some kind of addiction or there's something going wrong. Or like I imagine maybe that's what it was like in Burundi where it's like yeah you can enjoy yourself but then it's like you always have to be on alert if that it's mm. if it's unstable and it's yeah so so it is a privilege to have the like stability and security and to like not I guess it's the confidence in yourself as well like because if you mm. know yourself that you can always earn an income and provide for yourself and then you're letting you're giving yourself that other time to then pursue things. But a lot of people yeah. maybe don't have that. Yeah. The confidence yeah. in themselves. Yeah. I do think it can be reductionist to, to speak of my life and say, everybody should do this or everybody should do that because everyone's context is totally different. And there is, um, there is aspects um, of, an appreciation for my parents because they necessarily weren't like floating around thinking about what they want to do, but they were providing for me. And it was like by them providing for me and bringing me to a place of better opportunity, I have a bit now room to think. And that is the privilege. I think the room to think, um, and it's, yeah, it's biopsychosocial. It's like a mixture of, different factors but I do think um, there is more opportunity um, to have a like a flexible way of living than is presented Um, because I guess a, a sense of conditioning as well whether it's in school whether it's in social circles and then economic factors like you've mentioned of just like the immediacy of surviving can can prevent you from looking at a bigger picture of what is actually healthier, good for you and what you wouldn't engage with. So yeah, it's very, yeah, it's very multifaceted. It's not, there's no one answer for everyone, I guess. But yeah, it's, it's so interesting what you're saying about like a traditional job might not 
be that stable and then but your approach is very different to someone else's approach so your approach is to look at that and say okay well this isn't that stable anyway so why don't I just look after myself and figure out my own path whereas other people look at it and say okay well we need to strike and we need more rights and like I was just having this conversation with someone on Mm. Twitter I've just got into Twitter and I'm yeah. having lots of interesting <laughs> conversations. But it's like, that's how other people think. It's like, oh, well, then the government has to provide it to us. Or the work workplaces have to give us, like, security that we will always have a job or we will, can never be, you know, replaced. or whatever. And it's like, but that just isn't how it works. Like, you mm. can't ensure that a company can always provide because you know the company has to be profitable and making money if the company isn't making any money they can't continue to exist but and then people like okay well then the government has to like make sure but it's like yeah but the government only gets money from like us and from you know it's like but it's kind of yeah it's just it's just I love your approach to it rather than like screaming in the streets or like yelling at people that the system's wrong and it's like you've taken control of your own path I guess yeah I think um I think there's space for both and I also think that um there's different levels of there's different levels of observing what needs to be done uh, and all needs to be done in unison so when you say a company needs to be profitable that's within our economic structure so it doesn't necessarily have to be um like historically i'm very grateful for people who did strike and who did um speak up because a lot of the benefits that we have now is because people said i guess kids can't work at let's say five-year-old in a factory or whatever there needs to be some employment laws so people either don't burn out or kill themselves or it's not too basic safety things like that yeah so and i think so there's there's like the three horizon kind of aspect of looking at um what needs to be kind of changed there is like mitigating aspects of our current structure and then there's transitioning into what others, like how can we bridge to a different economic structure? And then there is thinking about, yeah, what other economic structures happen, right? And there's people working at those three levels, maybe in collectives or um, that that's a bigger picture. And then on an individual level, you can also think of that, like what can I do right now for myself? What can I do with other people? Um, and yeah, how can I do that on a broader scale? I do think... I think it's like if I protest against, let's say, technological unemployment or AI or um, like machines and Tesco taking people's jobs, and I think it's valid, but really... The deeper thing is, why do we have an economic structure that people have to work that way? Um, I think 
that in itself is also reductionist um and and i and i understand why people may listen to that and think well that's it's quite a big claim and because that's all we've known right um for the last few years but if you go even further back there is other ways we can structure and i'm sure in the future there will be other ways we can structure society and i think people do bring up stuff like ubi and um ensuring people have a way of living and for me it's not simply charity i think i really like the public health framing of things um like creating sewer systems and infrastructure actually prevents disease spreading and risking everyone so there is like a a practical level to building out the commons and infrastructure for people to live and thrive and um and it's yeah so it i i think yeah we do need to acknowledge that there is some inefficiencies in our structures um but also on an individual level how can i navigate within this structure in the best way or yeah just balancing those two things is a is a real challenge but i think it's one that people should acknowledge um because if i just thought thought about myself i think that might be myopic because i'm deeply connected to the social fabric of my world and i can't like insulate myself forever no matter how much money i i i get of course yeah that's just not how we work as humans either yeah. which is yeah i wanted to actually ask you if how you think about the meta crisis or if what you are saying kind of relates to that because this is how we ended up meeting yeah because you shared a link to yeah. i think it was to find and light and yeah. I clicked on it and set and it saw it said something about the meta crisis. And then I clicked, clicked. I was like, what is that? Haven't heard of it. Clicked to see the definition, which is. So this is from Terry Patton. And it says the meta crisis is a single phenomenon. We may be thinking of it as an ecological crisis. We may be thinking of it as a psychological or spiritual crisis. We may be thinking of it as a cultural crisis and a breakdown of community, family, etc. We may be thinking of it as a crisis of government, economics and finance. And it's just all of these things, but it's not reducible to any one of them. That's why it's a meta crisis. And that I think the bit that really interested me was this was the psychological, spiritual, cultural bit, breakdown of community. Um, and that's why I was really interested to speak to you. Mm. When we met at that random party in Hackney, I think. Yeah. But how do you think about the meta crisis and how it relates to the work you do and to what you were just talking about? Yeah, it's... um. Yeah, it's deeply connected to the stuff that I've been exploring and looking into. And it's interesting because the meta crisis, maybe five years or or less, came into my vocabulary, but before I was thinking about it in different terms. Um, but I think 
there's there's also a really great um, website that just emerged that delves deeper into the meta crisis that I will send to you. Um, and it was it's by a guy called um, Thomas, I think, or something along those lines. He had a presentation on a YouTube channel called The Stoa, which is more than a YouTube channel, um, but it's really interesting. So for me, the meta crisis. I think I first heard elaborated around um, people like Daniel Schmachtenberger and co. There's a whole group of people around that who are thinking about the inexorable termination of society, which seems like a, a big statement and a very scary thing. But it was comforting for me because I ran into information, loads of different scattered information prior to that around um, the unviability of our socioeconomic structure and and how that feeds into our psychosocial spiritual way of living and um how that influences how we relate to each other right um do we re reduce relationship as an instrumentalized way of generating more income or more opportunity or more status or do we look at it as two whole beings figuring things out and exchanging reciprocally. Um, and I think it's not reducible to, oh, I have this view, so I'm like this, or you have this view. It's more of like, how does our economic structure or our cultural structure um, shape the way in which we look at interactions? So um, the meta crisis is kind of looking at how all of these different seemingly um, separate issues are deeply interconnected and kind of almost have a root source um, and trying to deal with them individually might be insufficient because if you deal with AI, the synthetic biology that comes up and um, could potentially make irreversible damage to the world. Um, and there's elements going on here around multipolar traps and um, how various, various um, game theory dynamics are happening that accelerate all of these ecological, technological, psychological, and spiritual um, downward spirals so for me looking at that is kind of how do I both step back and look at the whole picture instead of being too focused on one topic because if I focus on one topic I might not see how it has a ripple effect into other topics how do I zoom out and then zoom back in to myself and think of how I live my life and how I create spaces that could potentially be um, fertile ground for different ways of being with each other. Um, and I do think it's important for me to highlight, I don't think it's just about just individuals changing on themselves. Um, it is about creating frameworks and structures that make it conducive for people to live a different life. And it's it's kind of both, right? It's not one or the other. Um, so yeah, this 
this kind of meta crisis and your interest in, I guess, the spiritual psychological component um, is very, very interesting how certain worldviews create certain mental health um, dynamics that are potentially not healthy um, and understanding that if someone's depressed or if someone is um, psychologically unstable what is the context around that it might not just be biological because um, there's factors like epigenetics which um, triggers a certain gene or a certain way of being due to environmental factors so I think it's very interesting to look at the context around the spiritual and psychological degradation and wonder what is the kind of culture around us that's that's doing that but i think on an individual level if someone hears that they can be like whoa that's it's the whole culture that's like what do i individually do and it's very interesting because like individually what you might have to do is connect with other people or it might be eating more healthy or it might be exercising but the thing that i find fascinating is just one or two steps into bettering yourself puts you into the outside world um, and you're so intimately connected to the outside world and the cultures around you so growing up I kind of was struck by this thing of I'm the curator of my world of my gallery if you think of it and I get to choose all the different people and interactions and spaces and environments that I'm in and that's probably the most healthiest thing I could do. So it's not just about me sitting in a room and figuring out my mental health, but it's about how do I curate the world around me as best as possible? And then how do I plant seeds for future generations' trees, if that makes sense? Like, what can I create that could help future generations that I may not see but would really be beneficial for a younger version of me or a future generation um, but I think yeah I think in regards to the meta crisis um, I guess Daniel Schmachtenberger is one person to look into and um, the many people he collaborates with whether it's um, Sextine, Jordan Hall and that whole world there's I'll send you the link um, you can share with people of how they can kind of think about the meta crisis, and also another interesting component to the meta crisis is I love the way it's framed as this is the problem we have to deal with, rather than immediately jumping to this is a solution. So it's more of this is the framework in which we should think about the multiple problems we have, and if you're trying to solve something check back into this and see does it have second third order effects in the other components of um of the meta crisis so thinking about it in that way kind of helps people have more of a complexity systems view and um 
yeah, there's so much around that. I think that is worth exploring for people. And have you managed to maintain good mental health while you've gone on this journey? That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> it's a mixture. I, I have definitely had a lot of, it's it's so funny because I work with Mind, the mental health charity, going into schools and talking about five ways of well-being and like mental health hygiene. But I also had an, an incredibly difficult mental health period of like um of like a spiraling paranoia of um of sorts or like a lot of overwhelm, I guess. Um but something that I'm coming to terms with is the fact that sometimes in an unhealthy world it might be like it might be worth feeling the depth of despair in order to appreciate the beauty. But I think having that balance is like a sense of humility, I think helps. Um yeah, I I in short I've had really difficult mental health periods. Um but in reflection, the thing that has helped me is being able to communicate with families and people around me. Um, and that has been a good kind of... Um, and families, if, if, if people are not close to the immediate family, it could also be friends and um, chosen family. Um, so I do think the social component is important. And something I'll throw in here is something around the blue zones which i think is really interesting um of places that people live to to kind of 100 or more um and the the various components that makes that healthy um culture it's not just one singular thing of just diet or just exercise or it's kind of how they all interweave with each other and how it's social like a lot of the exercise might be social the eating might be social the, like the outlook on the world and I think there's a great Netflix documentary on this of um, a guy called Dan Daniel Dan I think who saw the patterns and then tried, recreated some towns in America um, to kind of increase life expectancy and um, mental well-being and all of that the full spectrum of, of living interesting so, yeah, what's that, the documentary called it's called live to a hundred um Blue Zones, something like that, oh. if you type that on, on Netflix. I think you would really enjoy that. Um, I think that does link to mental health and the mental crisis in some sort in my head. Yeah, and if also if people don't feel like they have any friends they can talk to or they have, or that they have any friends or like they're yeah. feeling particularly isolated, then there are amazing charities like yeah. Mind, but also Crisis text lines yeah. like shout yeah. which i can put the um links in because some cuz i guess that is the um most painful thing of going through those negative downward spirals of feeling isolated and trapped yeah. and then that's yeah. how it can end up like in a deadly situation but that's really good that you have the support of your family yeah. and i feel like that's what I don't know the place you're in now, but I think for me, like now I've been in a good place for like 
about seven months and it's like I don't know how long it like hopefully it lasts but it's like if you know that you have those resources and that you've got out of it before it's like if it does happen again you know you know even like the diet exercise go outside connect with people like you kind of have the checklist and then it's like I've also know I can talk to these people and if I need to talk to them again they're there yeah 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 just a lot of compassion to you and um love for the last seven months and and you just continuously being um curious in ways in ways you can like evolve in this journey I I really um yeah I really honor that and I appreciate that and I think it's very valuable and um yeah as well as the information and organizations and people there is a sense that there is a a core aspect of ourselves that wants to keep living and thriving and evolving and being part of the whole that I think um, everyone's valued um, very uniquely not just on a numbers number quantitative thing but everyone has so much value so if anyone is listening you definitely have value to contribute to the world and you'll be missed if um yeah yeah if you no longer keep going or yeah or are able to turn up in the world in the most healthiest way um yeah and i also feel very curious to yeah have a conversation with you more about your journey and what you've experienced um yeah there's there's yeah there's there's so much to explore a bit further that kind of um yeah i wish there was more time or ways to delve into that yeah plenty of time to get into that (laughs) not on this not on this (laughs) don't worry audience we won't Uh, be talking about me for the next hour Okay, so last, the three questions I ask everyone, but before I ask them, I just, that are quick, but I just want to ask you last question. I think I ran into you again at another random event, a poetry thing. Yeah. Um, In Knightsbridge, it's like two very totally different parties. Um, And you said something about that you're, you feel like you're you know the mission or you know the path you're on and you kind of feel like you're at the point where it's like it's all coming together or you're able to articulate it or something like that I don't know if you remember but do you feel like now you're able to say something about what that mission is or what the what it is that you really want to achieve in your life or at least in the next couple of years or the direction you're heading in yeah um i have an attempt and it may shift i'm okay with it shifting in years but um currently it's around creating um viable cultural hubs that could be spatially physical spaces or um, spaces where people meet through ideas and conversations remotely but I think the mission is around 
um, yeah, galvanizing people around viable, healthy cultures. And for me, culture is not, it's not just um, how we treat each other, but also economic, infrastructural outlooks. Um, and it's funny because I said that to you before I watched this documentary on Blue Zones, but I think the ability to, in the Blue Zones documentary, ability to um, introduce new ways of being to a town and see them be healthier, see them thriving, um, see them, I guess, innovating. In that for me is very inspiring and I would love to create spaces like that um, and ways of being that nourishes me as well. There's a really important component to this, which is I want to not only create it for the outside world, I also want to embody it in my relationships and the way I live. So which means that it may go at a slower pace because I'm continuously trying to um, live up to the world that almost doesn't exist yet, which is a real, real challenge. Because um, if you don't have, I guess, the context and the infrastructure around you to live in a certain way, you're always split. That is a challenge, but it's something that I um, that I feel strongly about, and I don't think I had this framing when we last spoke. But I I now think of it in regards of three dynamics of um, research, creating, and sharing slash advising. And the research for me is not just being on the computer; it's having conversations with people. It's going out into the world and seeing what works, what doesn't work. Very praxis-based research. And then the creating is, whether it's an event or a physical thing or a framework that people could incorporate into their lives or their organizations, etc. And then the advising and sharing is kind of rippling it out into the world and helping other communities, organizations and people navigate in the in the best way they can within this current structure and as a build towards um, even healthier structures. I think something that's interesting I want to highlight is the fact that we are here talking on this computer and having this conversation due to people wanting to evolve things. And I think we shouldn't lose that um, that mindset of wanting to evolve things and people who who really pride themselves on either being innovators or imaginative shouldn't stop at just the technologies and just the businesses within this structure, but should potentially zoom out and think of how can I be agentic and um, involved in the shaping of the context in a healthier way um, that then I can then drop into that context and benefit from that and benefit from the relationships I get to have with multiple people and the things I get to um, the things I get to harvest in that experience um, so yeah I think that's the broader view I kind of envision healthy cultural hubs where people are creating practices rituals that kind of scaffold their life in a healthy way and then the details is very it's a lot more 
harder to do, but that is the broader vision for me. Um, yeah. Nice. Okay. Last three questions. Okay. Is there a book that's had a big impact on your life? There's, there's multiple books, but the book that I think is worth exploring because it kind of combines many different things is The New Human Rights Movement by Peter Joseph. Um, I think it's really worth reading and just delving deeper into the work that Peter Joseph does because he kind of synthesizes loads of different um, fields in a very elegant way. Um, I think that's a good start. Yeah, the New Human Rights Movement by Peter Joseph. Um, it covers a lot of ground and it's pretty extensive and good. I, I like it. Okay, how do you stay grounded? Again, there's a caveat, which is there's multiple ways you can do it, and it, it does change. I could talk about I meditate, I um, try to go out, I go to events, try to eat a good, healthy diet, um, try to have some kind of ritual practice every day. Um, but I think a sense of... Like... I. Th- I feel like there might be a German word because Germans have so many great words that combine things, but um, like an element of awe and like beauty, like me looking out the window and it's sunny and the sun on the leaves, but like awe and humility kind of seem to um, ground me. Uh, yeah, there's a, those two. And both the awe and the humility exist within me and within the broader tapestry of life um, because the awe is also me living. So, and that is that me? Is that not me? Like, um, And the humility is also... There's just so much, there's so much vastness, there's so much more than I understand and it keeps me curious and grounded rather than um, myopic, narrow-minded, thinking I have all the answers or, yeah, I'd say that. Amazing, I love that. Or, I really, yeah, I really like that. Um, Okay. Last question. What three words describe the best version of you? Um, Compassionate, curious and consistent and... I could kind of zoom into them a bit more. And I think the consistency sounds quite boring, <laughs> but 
I think there is something to to just be persevering and going like like when I was younger I used to like marathons rather than sprints there's something quite interesting and enduring for me personally about consistency and I think of how like the the waters come in on the shore very gently but ever so consistently that over time something as gentle as water can erode something as strong as a mountain and I think sometimes when we see something like a mountain we think of like bulldozer to kind of knock it all down but perhaps consistency is more viable and it's more enduring so yeah taking things gently curiosity is for me also both um, um, it's both analytic and creative because I can imagine a scientist being curious like an innovative scientist but I also can imagine like a storyteller or musician or artist being curious about things and it just takes you down a rabbit hole so it, it, it's interesting what because you say three things that describe me but I also think that you you did say it's three things that um describe me at my best as what I aspire to be at times so I don't always live up to it but I think it's something that I really value and I think um it's conducive to a healthy life and then compassion um, I think people may hear that and think, can I afford to be compassionate? Um, is it weak? Um, but I would say it also extends to yourself. Um, and there's, yeah, there's two ways you can develop as a person out of like a, a fear and like, I've got to go to the gym because I've got to be buff or got to get this because because there's something chasing me down and I have to do it or else like no pain no gain or you could have compassion and kind of find roots to your destination rather than forcing it down on being rigid and brutal um yeah I mean I could probably choose three other words on a different day but I would go for those three. Yeah, I usually choose three different words depending on the day. So <laughs> Yeah. Keeps evolving. Fluidity is probably an overarching <laughs> dynamic, maybe. It's an overarching word. Anyways, yeah. Love that. Okay, thanks so much, James. It's a pleasure. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, feel free to share it with someone. And also um a random 23 year old just messaged me on instagram and told me he found the podcast through the algorithm so it actually does help if you review the podcast and subscribe or follow and then you get to find out about future episodes as well review or rate you know what i mean anyway it would truly make my day so thank you in advance